Section 15 of G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joseph Grimer. G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922. By G.K. Chesterton. Section 15. Mr. Belloc and the Jews. In the case of Mr. Belloc, I have always found that my attempts at a criticism of his books tended to turn into a criticism of his critics. Doubtless it will be so with this hasty note on his new book, The Jews, and doubtless there are reasons for a trick so unjust to his genius and originality. The superficial cause is a sort of surprise at the strange disproportion between such creation and such criticism, or in other words, the strange separation of so much journalism from the serious thought of the age. Mr. Belloc is one of the first intellectual influences in modern history. He is not merely admired, he has convinced men, he has turned their minds. I cannot believe that men who said this fifty years ago were received in the press for the first twelve years, with a silence punctuated by sniggers. It was as if nobody had ever read a word about Darwin, except a very occasional paragraph about a lunatic who said men had tails. It is as if there had been no mention of Carlyle at all, beyond a rumour that a crazy old man lived in Chelsea, who thought that talking was wicked and that every man should wear a gag. This misunderstanding of Mr. Belloc is so strange and striking as to distract us even from the understanding of him. A deeper cause is that his theses are not inventions, but discoveries. If he had merely invented the servile state or the Jewish problem, as his enemies say, he might have all the glory of it as a wizard or a romancer, as he has discovered them because they are there. We also know that they are there, and we should continue to know that they are there even if he went mad and denied it. In short, in this he is scientific and not artistic, for only the artist can repeat the artist's spell, but any fool can verify the discoverer's find, when it is really found. Last, and the reverse of least, it is because he is, in a sense, far too real for what we call practical politics, a practical man. A book like The Jews aims at an effect. The understanding reader watches for the effect. The author propounds and proposes something. Is there a chance of his achieving it? When the great gun has fired, we no longer look at the gun, but at the target. For this reason, I despair of doing justice to the book as a book, to its literature, its learning, its imaginative justice, its generous causatory. Only one thing I will say of it is a symbolic summary. Any man who says that Mr. Belloc has merely written a book against Jews is mad. He must be a man insatiable of flattery and falsehood, and deaf and blind with the mania of persecution. No unionist justifying his distrust of the Irish would dream of taking so much trouble to allow for Irish feelings or state the Irish case, as Mr. Belloc takes for Jewish feelings and the Jewish case. No Englishman criticising France has ever thought of having so much sympathy and self-control as Mr. Belloc shows in criticising Israel. Any man who says Mr. Belloc has a prejudice against Jews is mad, Mad with prejudice. A prejudice plainly means a dislike for a thing before we know anything about it, and it is madness to say that Mr. Belloc knows nothing about Jews. Historically, he knows more about Jews than they do. He knows more in favour of Jews than they do. They complain of massacres, but few are likely to dwell on those in Cyrencenia in the second century. They urge toleration and peace, but they are not likely to look for them, as he does in a particular period of medieval Poland. Finally, and most Emphatically, any man who says Mr. Belloc believes in a conspiracy of Jews is not even mad, he is simply lying. That there is not a conscious conspiracy, 
but only the sort of cooperation natural in a scattered nation, is here stated by the author in the plainest possible words, not for the first time, nor I fear for the last. His main thesis about that nation is that which has long been maintained in this paper, that the solution is some separation of the Jews as a national unit or corporation, with some new points in it I may deal in another article. But the reception of the book resolves itself into one very simple question. Is it possible to get people to listen to reason? They will listen to rhetoric. They have long listened to rhetoric in favour of Jews. They are now more and more listening to rhetoric against Jews. If we go that wild way, there will be a worse than rhetoric against them. But nobody who listens to reason can pretend that Mr. Belloc's thesis is an insult to Israel, unless Sinn Féin is an insult to Ireland. I'm glad to say that Mr. Belloc's book has raised some reasonable discussion among intelligent Jews. There are some letters in the Sunday Times which are sincere and sensible enough, as far as they go. They plead that particular Jews are really deeply embedded in English life. Some of them do indeed remind Mr. Belloc that he had external relations with the French tradition or the Roman obedience. Now, even if this were true in their sense, it is really itself an answer to their question. I happen to know Mr. Belloc very well and I know that he is an Englishman interested in France, and not a Frenchman interested in England. I know that his soul will really sing on Duncton Hill, and not on the highest peaks of the Pyrenees. But nobody will deny that, whichever way we put it. He is in a rather exceptional position among Englishmen. And that is exactly the point. The Jew, in living among Christian nationals, is not in an exceptional position among Jews, and that is exactly the point. If Belloc were really an exile, or an alien, or a hybrid, he would still only be Belloc, while the Jews would be a race of Belloc's. But there is no such community in his case. Suppose, for the sake of argument, that he is a French exile in England. Still, there is not another Belloc in Sweden, writing weekly articles for the, a new witness in Stockholm, as he does for the new witness in London. There is not another Belloc in Russia, writing poems about the Caucasus as he writes poems about the Downs. There is not a fourth Belloc in Turkey, having written military criticisms in a Turkish paper throughout the war, and a fifth Belloc in America, having denounced a piece of political graft in New York, in the manner of the Marconi case, and a sixth Belloc in India, having just written a book on Buddhism called Asia and the Faith. In short, he would only be an individual instance, even as a hard case. If he is really an exile, he is really an exception. Now nobody but a fool would deny that those individual exceptions do exist in any international relation. Division of England from Ireland, for instance, will undoubtedly uproot some families rooted in both islands, but that alone does not prove that the Irish are not and ought not to be a separate union. Now I, for one, agree with the individual Jews about the individual cases which they describe in the Sunday Times. There are individual Jewish friends of mine, whom I know well as I know Mr. Belloc, whom I should be inclined to say that they have assimilated so much of the English soil and habit as to make it at least very difficult and possibly very harsh to detach them. These cases really are, in that sense, like the case of Mr. Belloc, or at least like his case as they honestly conceive it to be. To them, at least, he is an exception, and to me, at least, they are exceptions. They are the hard cases that can be found under any rule, but for that very reason they do not themselves constitute a rule, they do not destroy the general truth about the nomadic and cosmopolitan condition of the Jew. And then follows what always happens. The Jews, having urged these individual instances that really might support their case, rush on to pile up all the instances that prove ours. 
they demand with innocent indignation, whether we do not admit the national quality in the very people we should ourselves select as most anti-national. Mr. Kaufman Nirakesti asked for ordinary European citizenship for a crowd of clever cosmopolitan Jews ranging from Hein to Lombroso, from Spinoza to Durdenberg, from Brandes to Balin, and so on. I could prove Mr. Belloc's case from nearly every one of these names, one after another. If I were a German, I should have been very angry with Hein's French sympathies, because he was not a German rebuking his country, but a sham German who has really preferred another country. The names of Nordeaux and Lombroso, which he quotes, are very unfortunate, for the two unquestionably backed each other as being both Jews and kinsmen. George Brandes did disastrous harm to Denmark by being supposed to be a Dane. It was quite allowable that a Jew should have sympathy with Germany, but it was deplorable that a Dane should do homage to Prussia. These men are startling demonstrations of the very false position that Mr. Ballock describes. For the moment, my last word, as I expected, has to be given not to Mr. Ballock, but to the Jews whom he is trying to save. But if it were truly my last word to them, then this is what it would be, that Mr. Ballock is simply trying to save them. It is no good now to discuss the merits of the Victorian Compromise, in which I lived like everything else until I was about twenty-five. The idea that the Jews are an English sect, or that there is no Jewish problem at all, that view is dead already, as dead as Queen Victoria or Queen Anne. What is boiling up in England now on every side is a sheer instinctive, anarchical anti-Semitism. The Jews have to choose between that and the other thing, which is listening to reason, and in this case means listening to Belloc. End of section 15